Well, I think one of the, uh, the sayings that keep coming back to me is throughout this whole pandemic time, and it's, and it's not a criticism by any means. It's just what, when I've talked to uh, doctors or if I've talked to um, you know, people who are considered experts, it's that what kept coming back to me is, you know, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. And, and so the phrase that kept coming into my head is this thing, I don't know who said it, um, but it's this, this, this phrase, this quote, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. He's heard this before, I think, right? A little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. In other words, it's, it's better to have no knowledge than have a little bit of knowledge. You know, if I have a little bit of knowledge of how my car works, as opposed to no knowledge. If I have no knowledge and my car doesn't work, I'm not gonna touch it. If I have a little bit of knowledge, I might think like, I can fix that. Yeah, I got this, right? And, and there's so many areas in our lives where a little bit of knowledge, you know? And, and the problem is, of course, we think our little bit is a lot. And it's not. Or we get into this mindset that our little bit, we know it's not a lot, but it's enough. And that's a dangerous thing too. I've never gone skiing. It's one of those things I've wanted to do, but never wanted to do so much that I went and actually did it or planned a ski trip or anything like that. But I know people like this, and I'm not going to name them. And if you know people like this, you can think fondly of them at this moment. But people who've never gone skiing before, and then they go, and from what I understand is when, if you've never skied before, they have ski lessons. And they have you go on what's sometimes called the bunny slope, right? And the bunny slope is the kind of easy, gentle slope that you go down. And what happens sometimes is, you know, if, if you're like a, you know, it's, it's probably usually guys that do this and probably certain age guys that do this, that after a good 10 minutes on the bunny slope, they begin to think like, I got this. Bring on the advanced, you know, slopes, right? And they, and, and they, wanted, they just wanted to go right up to that. And of course, that's why hospitals around ski country are always busy, you know? with people who've spent a good 10 minutes on the bunny slope and think they can go to the more advanced slopes. And then they either real, you know, break something or run into something because you know, they haven't learned everything that they need to learn. They didn't realize that bunny slope was, was really helping them. You know, I thought about another way of this little bit of knowledge thing is, have you ever heard this on a plane? Have you ever heard, Ladies and gentlemen, this is my first ever flight, but don't worry, I learned enough to do this. Have you ever heard a pilot, other than maybe on Southwest Air, when they kind of joked around, has, have you ever heard anybody, have you ever heard a pilot announce, this is my first ever flight, to everybody? Probably no. And if it happens, it's probably rare. Because you don't really want to know that's your pilot's first flight. But here's the thing we do know. Every pilot had a first flight. And you could very well have been on one, right? 
But you don't want them to say like, ah, you know, I know enough. I know enough. You know, there's this thing that says, you know, there's this old kind of joke that says the, the, the doctor who finished last in his class is still somebody's doctor, right? He knew enough, he got passed. But think about people that do things that we don't want to hear that they know enough. You know, you don't want the engineer or the architect to say, you know, I know enough. You don't want the pilot to say, I know enough. You don't want the doctor to say, I know enough. You know, the plumber, the firefighter. There's so many things that we're just, we just go like, no, this is way too important. I'm putting my life in your hands and I don't want you just to know enough. But it's funny because as Christians, we often settle for just knowing enough. We think, you know, I know enough. I, I got the basics. I got the, the ABCs of Christianity down. You know, I know enough. And even though the Bible says I should hunger and thirst after God's word and, and after God's righteousness, even though it says that, you know, that's okay for those really serious Christians, but I know enough. And I think sometimes that we, we, we for some reason, think that because either we think that, that what we know is more than what we actually know, or maybe what we know is more than what needs to be known. And so we, we think we know enough. We think we know enough. Or, and sadly I suspect this is true for a lot of people, we've just decided it's not that important. It's not like a doctor who I want to know more than enough. It's not like the pilot who I want to know more than enough. It's just the Bible. And it's enough just to know enough. I think we've forgotten that we have been given, as believers in Christ, we have been given a sacred task. We have been given a task from God himself. And that he, he thinks this, this task is so important that he's done so much to help us do it. You know, he's, he, you know, we talked about it. He gives us his spirit. We've talked about it. He's given us his word. We've talked about it where he, he's given us his, his, his church. He's given us people who are teachers and others. And we live in a day and age where there's really no excuse for most of us, especially in the first world, to say, I just don't have access to any resources. And yet we still think like we know enough. And I think it's because we think it's, it's easy or we, or, we, or we don't think it's that important. And so we, we, you know, we take the pedal off. We're like, yeah, okay, I remember a time when I really, really worked at it, when I really tried to study, and I got to a certain point where I know enough. It's, it's one of these things, again, I think I've talked to you guys about that. I didn't know, like, till my brother, who was a surgeon, you know, 
you know, told me like he had spent all these years in school, you know, not just undergraduate, but med school. And then he had his, he had his special, you know, his specialization, he's an orthopedic surgeon and all these other things. And then I remember visiting him one time and he goes, oh, I have to go to this uh, continuing education thing. And, you know, I never thought about that. I never thought that, I thought like, man, you're done, you're done. You spent all that money, you spent all that time. Certainly they could have told you everything you need to know. But I'm glad I know that now that doctors and surgeons and many other professions continue to grow and continue to learn. But somehow as Christians, and even as Christian teachers, we've decided, no, you just got to get to a certain base knowledge, and that's enough. Well, we're going to look at the text today and realize that's really not the case. And so we're, we're coming to James, and we're looking at the, the letter that James wrote. And again, we think James is one of the earliest New Testament writings that we have. And James is writing to, to a group, and it's largely thought to be Jewish uh, believers, Jewish people who've become Christians. And it could be Jewish people who became Christians who had come from a very strict Jewish uh, tradition, Jewish background, or it could have been those who were more what are called um, Hellenized Jews. So they were more culturally Greek, but that they were still ethnically Jewish. But the, the issue is this connection between faith and works, because no matter which side they came out of, um, that had always been a connection in Judaism, that there was always this uh, you know, Judaism is a very ethical faith. You know, if, if you read it, you know, if you read what's, what's, what's in the Old Testament, you read through the Hebrew scriptures, and then you even read through, um, you know, subsequent uh, Hebrew writings, you, you can see it, it's, it's very concerned with how we live, how we behave. And it, it creates this kind of tension where we... Um, as human beings, you know, we struggle with it. You know, we, we're trying to figure out, like, you know, which one is more important. And James is helping this first century, um, first generation group of Christians know that they're both important. In fact, you only get it right if you understand that they are connected. If you just have faith that's not connected to your works, it's not good enough. If you just have works, but no faith, or it's not connected to your faith, not good enough either. That what Jesus came to do was change us thoroughly. Change us thoroughly so that all of our actions are connected to who we are in Christ. And Paul tries to express this same thing. James tries to express the same thing because the tendency among human beings is to disconnect them. Even if we say faith is important, works are important, we still disconnect them. We don't realize that they're connected and that it's really only saving faith if it's connected to these works and these works are only really righteous acts if they're connected to faith. And so 
even when we kind of think both are important, we don't understand that they're connected. And it leads to all kind of problems. And I'm not going to go into all the problems it leads to right, right now, but, but some of the problems you know, like, like legalism. It can lead to legalism. It can lead to ritualism. It can lead to what has been called in, in, in church history, dead orthodoxy. In other words, you have all the right beliefs, but you're dead. It can lead to all kinds of problems. It can lead to an incredible inconsistency with how we live and how we, how we show God's love to others. Where on one hand, we can, we, you know, we can apply certain you know, things that we value about who we are and then completely ignore other things. And so it's an it's a, it's a essential question. It's not just for the first generation. It's for us today because we struggle with the same thing. We want to have either or or we want to have both but not have them connected. And I'm not sure we understand fully why we don't want them connected, but I think I understand. I think I understand at least a part of it. Because when you connect your works with your faith, when you connect how you act, how you think, how you feel, how you speak with your faith, when you connect those things, you lose control of them. You see, as long as I can keep them separated, I can choose which acts to do. I can choose when to be Christian or not Christian. But when it's connected to my faith, if I keep feeding my faith, I, I don't get to choose anymore because it's just, I just do it. It's just coming out of who I am. And I think that's why sometimes we, we, we like them separate. Because I can still believe all the right things, but I can be selective about how I apply them. Well, let's look at the text for today in the second part of chapter one of James. So James writes this, he says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Again, the temptation with James is to treat James as though he's, he's giving a list of, you know, kind of proverbs, a list of, you know, wise sayings. And that's not the way to read James. 
James is a letter that's centered around this, this message, this theme of the connection between faith and works and that if you have true faith, it will lead to certain works. And he, he, last week when we looked at the first part of chapter one, he was, he was emphasizing the importance of steadfastness and that steadfastness only comes if you have a tested faith. And so if you've lived your whole life trying to avoid the testing of your faith, you've lived your whole life thinking like, I'm going to be this kind of private Christian, generally good person, but no one really knows, so that no one ever asks me. No one ever at work, no one in my family, no one in my neighborhood ever, ever asks me about my faith or never challenges me and says, do you really believe that stuff? Because I've done such a good job of, you know, keeping it secret. So there's, you know, there, there's no testing. Or if, if is as I talked about last week, you know, as a Christian, your whole goal is, is to be as safe as possible and to be as comfortable as possible. And... And to make sure, of course, your loved ones and your family are as safe and as comfortable as possible. How has your faith been tested? I mean, if, you know, we sometimes use the word sacrifice. And of course, we, we miss what the word sacrifice means because sacrifice is, is a really serious word. And, and yet in our culture, we've, you know, we've kind of, you know, it's okay. It's what happens in culture. It happens in language. I mean, we say something like in baseball, it's a sport that used to be played in America um, before the pandemic. But it's in, in baseball, there's a thing called sacrifice fly, right? Okay, so you gave up an out so someone could score a run. It's a sacrifice. But we don't think about sacrifice in this way, that the Bible talks about sacrifice. We don't, we don't think about sacrifices is where I'm, I'm, not just, I'm not just giving something or I'm not just doing with less than I could do with. It's that I'm giving up things that I actually need. You know, I, I think as pastor, I get to, I, I don't get to brag about a lot. I get to boast in Christ and I think I get to brag about our church. And, you know, one thing it's been great about this church over this, this, it's been great for all the time I've been here, but especially in these last few months is that every time there's a need, every time in the letters that I send to you guys, I raise a need, you guys overwhelmingly meet the need. I mean, just our church, which isn't very big, I mean, we're, we're sending almost $7,000 to Haiti. It's amazing. And that wasn't any like big promotional, you know, any, you know, we didn't do anything, just say there's a need. And, and, and you've never been to Haiti. You have no idea how far $7,000 goes. And that's great, we give, and I think we should give. And some of you may have given sacrificially. You didn't just give out of your excess, but you did more. And that, that's when, when it talks about a tested faith, 
It talks about a surrendered life. It talks about a life willing to sacrifice. It means that. It means giving time you really don't have. People, you know, ask me and they ask me sometimes about my wife and I don't know if they ask my wife this, but, you know, they hear about the things we do and they go, how do you, how do, you do it? Well, because we don't do a lot of other things that people do. And it's okay. We're good with it. But there's a, there's a, there's a giving, there's a sacrifice. And I wouldn't even compare that to real sacrifice. And, but it's whether it's time that we don't have, that we need for something else. Whether it's, you know, things that we have, possessions. It's, it's tested, a tested faith doesn't try to live life as comfortably as possible. But we can't have steadfastness if we're not tested. We can't be tested if our objective is to live as safe and comfortably as possible. And of course, we can never really have wisdom then. So James has been trying to set all this up. And so what he's saying here is not like you can just turn it on. You can't go from whatever you are to doing all this. He's saying this stuff comes from steadfastness. This stuff comes from a tested faith. You will do something and you will do something at the level you can do it. Maybe it's like the bunny slope level and that's fine because that's where we start. But we can't do some of the things that he's saying unless we have faith. And we have faith that's more than knowledge, but it's a tested faith. And so the first thing that we see, which is actually not the first thing that he says, it's down in verse 21, which is kind of the direction of that, is that the faithful, if you want to be faithful, you humbly receive God's word. And I want to emphasize the word humbly receive God's word. Humbly. It says, restore with meekness the implanted word able to save your souls. You see, this gets back to that first, first idea of we think we know enough. If you think you know enough, you are not being humble. If you think you know enough about God, if you think you know enough about Christianity, if you think you know enough about the Bible, you are not being humble. Because if you were humble, then you would realize that God is so much more than us, that the Bible is so much deeper than we know, that you would just be like, God, I don't really know much at all. You would hunger. You would thirst. You would be, teach me more. Every opportunity, teach me more. I don't hear this too much except from my wife. Like, your sermons are too long. Okay? And probably some of you think that too. But here's what I never hear. 
Why did you stop so soon? I was feeding on the word. Why did you stop? The only time I've ever heard that was when I was in Kenya. I was in Kenya and I was preaching. I had a translator who was, you know, translating. You know, I went a good 40 minutes. Translator went another 30, 45 minutes after I was done. I'm pretty sure he wasn't retranslating what I said. Because in Kenya, it's like, you know, we, we, we're, not there for, we're not there for a snack. You know, we're there to feed on God's word. There's people that just think like they're, they, they don't humbly receive God's word. So they think they can just pick up God's word and just read it. And, and that's all they need to do. And then they can understand it. And they don't, they don't understand, no, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes study, and it's a lifetime of it. On Monday nights when we have been doing the how to study the Bible, you know, one thing I try to, to, to tell everybody who's doing it, and I'm so grateful that so many people are trying to learn, but one of the things I try to tell them is, is that just because you follow these steps that I'm telling you, doesn't mean when you get to the last step that bing, the light's going to go on and you understand the text perfectly. No. You've just gone deeper, but there's more. It's a lifelong effort. It's a community effort of receiving God's word. It's you teaching me, me teaching you. It's us seeing this lived out in our lives. It's us discussing this in, in, different, in different areas from different perspectives. And the humility is part of what he says at the beginning, which is like, uh, be quick to hear. Be quick to hear. So that this, this idea that some people have, which is they already know what's right, they just need the Bible to prove it. No, that is not a humble attitude towards the word. I know it's right. I just need a few Bible verses to prove that I'm right. Oh, they don't say it that way, but that's kind of the approach. No, it's like you open God's word, you study God's word, and, and you're saying, teach me. Not I know, and now I'm going to prove it with a few Bible verses. No, teach me. That's humility. One of, one of the guys that helped me in my life early on, at first I didn't, you know, I didn't agree, and then after I realized it's actually smart. And whenever he would do discipleship, he would never go to somebody and say, you need to be discipled and and I want to disciple you. No. He would wait. Because he knew that discipleship really wasn't going to happen until somebody was humble enough to say, I need discipleship. I need to be taught. I need someone to walk with me. And so many of us, we don't think we have that need. Because we think we know enough. The faithful humbly receive God's word. 
I'll tell you how you know you get it right. You get it right when you, when you start reading God's word and you're not trying to prove that you're right. You're trying to learn what it means to be righteous. You want to know what it means to be right with God, not prove that you are right. Because I know this, if I'm searching God's word and I'm studying God's word to know what it means to be righteous, I know this, I know I'm going to find a whole lot of stuff that I'm not and that I need to work on and that needs to be constantly changing in my life. But if I approach scripture like, I know the truth, I got it, let me just read the Bible so I can throw some Bible verses in on my brilliance. It's not humility. But it's, it's more than that. If you, if you back up just, you know, I went to the end because that's where it was leading. But if you back up, you know, you, you see this, this quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. He, he's, he's actually, you know, talking about these these specific situations that we find ourselves in so much. And, and oftentimes when we get in trouble, we, we flip these. We're slow to hear and we're quick to speak. And we need to understand that, that, that you know, James's understanding from first century is, is speaking is more than just words. Speaking comes out of who we are. And I think in the same sense, so does listening. If you're someone who's, who's slow to hear, what you're really saying about the other person is you're not really that important. You really, you know, aren't worthy of speaking. And we, we don't think about it that way. We think about it this way like, you know, I know truth, I'm right, and, and I need to give it to you as soon as possible. So you stop this wrong thinking and you start right thinking as soon as possible. Most people are not going to be ready to, to turn and to have right thinking until they've gotten all that wrong thinking out of their heads. We flip this around. See, when we're quick to hear, you know what we're doing? We're doing that biblical principle that, that I've been talking about, that biblical principle of quick to hear, which is when we study the Bible, we want to know context. I don't know context if I don't listen to what someone else is saying, even if what that person is saying is wrong. They could have totally wrong idea of what actually happened. Their facts could be wrong. Everything could be wrong. But part of context is understanding where someone emotionally is. And if I don't listen, if I just get caught up in your facts are all wrong, then I don't ever establish context. And if I don't know context, how am I actually going to help this person? The other thing being quick to hear and slow to speak does is 
it, is a, it allows us to, to consider what is best for the whole situation and everybody involved. You see, one of the problems that's happening in our, in our nation today, one of the problems is, is that people wanna, wanna like solve like a problem for one group of people instead of thinking, how do we do this for everybody? Because everybody's got a problem. Everybody contributes to these problems. That's what a society is. Yes, we benefit. Yes, we're better because we're together. But whenever we have problems, we're all part of it. That's hard. It's easier to blame. It's easier to just, you know, focus on the victim or focus on the criminal. It's easier just to, you know, just kind of close our minds to how what we're doing affects everybody else. That's easier to do. And I guess the rest of the world can do it, but Christians can't. Christians, we have to, this is the high standard, we have to love everyone perfectly all the time. Not love some sometimes. The standard we're called to is to love everyone perfectly all the time. That's why we need God, because I can't do that. You know, we live in a world where it's not only do people want to be quick to speak, they also want to be quick to post. They just want to shoot their opinions out all the time. The rest of the world can do that. Christians, we have to be careful. If we're really going to be followers of truth, if we're really followers of Christ, Christ who calls himself truth, one of the reasons we're quick to hear and slow to speak is so that when we speak, we speak truth. Quick emotional reactions and responses almost always lead to bigger troubles. Almost always. Second thing here is the faithful do not just learn, they do not just have faith, but they act and they do. They don't just hear the word. And again, I, I don't have to go over this because I talked about this before, but just to, just to let you know, it's not an either or. I see all these well-meaning books. Are you a Mary or are you a Martha? You know what you're supposed to be? You're supposed to be a Marthary or a Maritha. That's what a Christian is. You're not just a, a Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus listening and you're not just a Martha out there trying to do all the work. As believers, as healthy believers in Christ, James is saying you're both. You're hearers and you're doers. It's not a choice. You're both. Sure, you're going to be predisposed. Whatever you think you're predisposed to, work hard to be the other thing too. Because the thing that you're predisposed to, you're going to do. If you're a doer, you're going to do. Work harder at being a hearer. 
Work harder at, at really being a, you know, a disciple in terms of learning and growing. If you're more inclined to be a hearer and a doer and you love to study and that's all, but you don't, you don't really do, you're just a hearer and a student and a disciple and you love to like just learn, work harder at doing Find the thing that you're naturally bent to do, you're predisposed to do, and don't just give in and say, that's how God made me, so I'm just going to do that. No. James is calling us. We're to be both. Hearers and doers. And he's making that connection that this, these actions we take, these words that we say, these thoughts that we think, these feelings that we feel, they should come from what we believe. Because what we believe, if we really believe it, is, is, is shaping who we are. And that's always, it's always the, the, the challenge. You know, um, you know and, and the Bible is, is full of examples of these, not just Mary and Martha. You know, we got Peter, right? We got Peter who wasn't much of a hearer, apparently. But he was a doer. He was the one that, oh man, if Jesus was going to go through the door, you know, they probably didn't have doors like we have, but if they did, he would have run, he'd have been the person to open the door for Jesus. And he wasn't doing it to be like selfish or anything else. He's just a doer. But he couldn't sit there and actually understand Jesus. He couldn't sit there and really learn because he was probably always thinking about the next thing. Oh, Jesus has been talking for 20 minutes. He probably needs some water. Let me get some water. Oh, you know, uh, you know Jesus, you know, he's, he's, you know, we've been walking around all day. Let me, let me run ahead and, and make sure there's, that we have some food and a place to stay. Again, right heart, great guy. You need to be a hearer, not just a doer. But James is confronting the other problem, the problem of people that are having no problem just coming, listening, growing, studying, learning, but then not living. And so we get to this last point, which takes up, you know, the last few verses. He says, for the faithful... If you're faithful, he gives us three areas that we're going to see this come out. So first of all, we've talked about controls. God's word will control your thoughts and your words. And he, he repeats this. And by the way, he's going to unpack this even more in the rest of the letter. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So... Understand what James is saying. And again, it's because James has this understanding that what comes out of your mouth is what's in your heart. And he's saying your faith is worthless if you don't control your tongue. If you just say whatever. If you're just critical of and not wanting to like, like actually help, you just want to complain. You just want to be negative. Control it. And don't control it by going, you know, if, if that's the case, then Christians, I think, if, if it was just about you not saying things, 
I think Christians throughout the past 2,000 years would have all bitten through their, their cheek or their tongue, stopping themselves from saying all these negative things about each other. But understand, it's not just what comes out of your mouth. It's what's in your heart. You see, if you take care of what's in your heart, it ain't going to come out of your mouth. And if, so if anything comes out of your mouth and it reflects what's in your heart and what's in your heart comes from faith in God, then it's going to be good. And it doesn't mean you suddenly become stupid. It doesn't mean you suddenly can't see negative things. You can see them, but now you see them in context and you see them as, okay, how do we help? How, if I'm going to say something, how is what I'm saying going to make things better? It's not biting your tongue. It's what's in your heart. The second thing he says is, he talks about religion is pure and undefiled. And I'm so glad James says it this way. He says, you don't bridle your tongue, your religion's worthless. And then he says, if you don't do this next thing, your religion is not pure. In fact, it's impure and it's defiled. And that other thing is that God's word will move you to care for the most needy and he's particularly talking here about the church. The most needy in the church. And he's talking about orphans and widows. And we know that early Christians go way beyond just the church. You know, I, I mentioned this back when the, this whole shutdown was starting. That one of the things that set Christians apart is that when other Romans were fleeing people who had the plague, Christians were going and caring for them even though it meant some of them were going to get the plague and they were going to die. But they went and they, they served and they helped because they were the most needy. We know that, that it, was a, it was a practice in, in Roman society and other ancient societies that if a child was, was, had any kind of disability or deformity or if a child, sometimes just the fact that the child was a girl, they would abandon the children. They would, they would actually have places to take the kids and just abandon them. And we know Christians went and got these kids and raised them, took care of them. Even though they were later accused of taking those babies and eating them, they still did it. Amazing. But he's saying for sure... He's saying, he's not specifically talking about in outside society. He's saying, for sure, take care of each other in the church. The most needy in your church, are, do you know who they are? And are you thinking about how to help meet their needs? Again, that's why I love the, what you guys did for Haiti, even though, you know, they're not part of our church. They're part of, you know, the, 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 the universal Christian church. And... And I can guarantee you, Haiti, the churches that are up there, it's very unlikely that they'll ever be able to do anything to help us. And yet you guys helped them. What do we do for the most needy? And then the last part, the part that a lot of people want to forget, they're okay with the first part. 
They're okay with the second part, but this last part where he says, stay unstained from the world. See, this is, if we're faithful to God's word, it's not just our controlling of our thoughts and words, it's not just caring for the most needy, but it's also that we will, we will be protected, we will keep ourselves unstained from the world. And he's going to unpack this more too, but, but for lack of a, like, for, you know, not deeper explanation, just a short explanation, he's saying, look, there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And they're right and they're wrong because this is the way the world thinks. This is what the, motivates the world. This is what the world thinks is okay. And this is what's right. And he's saying, you have to keep yourself unstained. How are you going to know that if you don't know God's word? It always goes back to that. It always goes back to if we're going to do this, we need to know God's word. And then we need to live God's word. But today, you know, there's a lot of people in the church, they want a Christianity. They want everything about Christianity except that part that says sin. They either want to redefine sin or they want to just get rid of it altogether. Because if they, if they, if they keep it the way that the Bible talks about sin, then we, it, they think like there's no way that they can care or be a part of society that has made legal and acceptable things that the Bible says is sin. And they, and they think that there's no way that they can be, like, be able to help these people and love these people who are caught up in these things or, or, or be part of society and be accepted in society. And by the way, it's more than just those things. A lot of what once that the values that make us want to stay comfortable and safe, they're not from the Bible. They're from the world. It's not a, we've made them seem holy, we've made them seem Christian, but nowhere in the Bible does it say, I have called you, I have chosen you, so that you can be the safest person. It's always so I can use you. There's a lot of ways we can be stained by the world. The way that we work against that is by knowing God's word and what it means to follow him. James is a very ethical book, make no doubt, but it's connected to who we are. Ethics alone is just legalism and ultimately going to be limited and doomed to fail. The only way that we can do what God's word tells us is if God is doing it through us. And that's why we have to both live the gospel and share the gospel. It's the only hope.